Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recover Everything podcast, where we have honest discussions about everything in recovery, mental health, and lots of other things. I'm your host, Chris West. Go to our website at recovereverything.com to say hello. Check us out. Follow us on social media at Recover Everything, Instagram and Facebook. We got a lot of cool stuff happening. Then go and listen and subscribe at all your major streaming platforms, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, I think is coming soon. Get involved with the Recover Everything podcast. We want to get involved. We want you to get involved. So interact and we'll do the same. On this episode, we have Krista Hales, who is a director at the Center for Behavioral Health, along with being an advocate and a member of countless organizations and foundations. Krista does a lot for the community. My co-hosts this episode are Joseph Ingle from Tinhai, which Krista sits on the board of, and Chelsea Money. Enjoy. summer here don't they the the renaissance renaissance festival these dudes do it uh every weekend wow (laughs) that's overachievers yeah do they eat turkey legs too i don't know i think they just eat it eye up (laughs) it's gonna drive me crazy now that i can't think of the name of this place hello everyone and welcome to recover everything podcast uh i'm your host chris west with me is chelsea money hello beautiful people and Joseph Engel. Hello. And our guest this week is Krista Hales. Yes. I get it right? Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. You work at the Center for Behavioral Health? During the day. During yes. the day. Yes. I have numerous kind of I roles. I've seen played. it. <laughs> One reason I wanted Joe to come on is because you guys work together. Yes, we sure do. And Joe is, has our most popular episode. Oh. Happy to, happy to hear that. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah. It's number one. Wow, I'm, I'm number not. one in something. Yay! <laughs> right? Now you can retire and just do podcasts for a living with Bearded Dragons. Yeah. No, it's not there yet. <laughs> Center for Behavioral Health. Center for Behavioral Health. Yes. Work there during the day. Mm-hmm. What do you do at night? Are you Batman? <laughs> I wish. That would be the coolest thing ever. I'd be the best mom in the world if I was Batman at night. But um, I'm a full-time student as mm-hmm. well. I'm getting my doctorate from ASU. Woo-woo. And then I'm also involved in like multiple community organizations. So I'm on the board of directors for Tin High. I'm on the um, with the Southern Nevada Harm Reduction Alliance, the Southern Nevada Association of Addiction Professionals, um, Southern Nevada Opioid Advisory Council, First Responders Advisory Council. I'm kind of all over the place. Busy lady. As a question for Joe. Uh, so she's involved in all of us. What what drew her to your organization? Um, what drew me to her? To yeah, asking yeah. her to be a board member. Yes, that that's what I meant. Well, the old saying is, if you want something done, you find somebody who's busy. Okay, and certainly Kristen knows knows how to get stuff done. So why so many why so many eggs in so many baskets? I like being involved. I grew up here. I've lived in Vegas since I was three. And so this is my home and I feel like protective of my community. And so the more I can do, the more people I can help, the more satisfied I am. How did your advocacy start? Like what, what drew you to so this I was, community? I was originally, when I went into college, I was pre-med. I was going to be a pediatrician. I was dead set on that. And then I took my first biology class at ASU and absolutely hated it and <laughs> said, I'm never taking another science class in my life. And then I lost two family members to suicide by overdose in a very short time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I was looking into what direction I was going to head, since I was no longer going to be pre-med, I kind of moved to the counseling realm, looking at like what my family was going through and how many other families could potentially be going through those things. 
And then I had a really good professor at UNLV that got me hooked into specifically addiction counseling. And through that, I just kind of had doors open along the way. And What was the first uh, group that you joined? So I've worked with CBH for seven years now, and they were my first job out of college and my first real grasp in the addiction world. I had done internships before, but nothing really of like substance. Um, And then the director at CBH graduated from the same master's program that I graduated from. And so she kind of drew me in. And so it was it was CBH. Yeah. Yeah. So what is CBH for the people that don't know that are listening? It's Center for Behavioral Health. It's a mouthful, so we say CBH. But what is the organization? So we um, do outpatient substance abuse treatment. We've specialized in medication-assisted treatment um, for the majority of the time that the organization has been around. Um, They started in 1983 in Arizona, and now they have 23 clinics nationwide. Wow. So it's a big company. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've expanded services of over the last like two years. It's amazing. There seems to be a, like some controversy with medically assisted treatment. Yes. There was. There was. Not so I, much I think I think kind of the walls are being broken down a little bit because um, they're starting to do more research on abstinence-based programming versus medication-assisted treatment. And they're starting to see that abstinence doesn't work for the majority of the population. I think the last thing I saw was that it only works for 18% of people that seek abstinence-based treatment. Why do you think that is? It's hard to cut cold turkey from any type of habit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's If you think about how many people do like yo-yo diets and stuff like that, like it's, it's very hard to commit to change without that extra support. And um, there's been great strides in medication-assisted treatment with new options, new formularies, new ways that can be administered, all of that, that makes it a option for people. So can you break down a little bit of what medication-assisted treatment is? Yeah. So right now there's um, medication-assisted treatment or MAT. Mm -hmm. MAT's the acronym for it. There's MAT options for nicotine, alcohol, and opioids. Um, We focus solely on opioids. There's three different FDA-approved medications for those, and they come in various different forms. Like Fivatrol... Vivitrol, methadone, and buprenorphine. Mm-hmm. Um, they come in oral forms, um, methadones oral only. Then there's injectable versions now. So there's an injectable version of buprenorphine and uh, Vivitrol. And then there's also now an implant version of buprenorphine, which is another option for individuals. Uh, those two drugs, they block the receptors, right? Um, so you don't feel effects, right? Or is yes. that just Vivitrol? Uh, Vivitrol and buprenorphine both. Mm-hmm. So that they'll cover those receptor sites. So essentially, if someone uses on them, they won't feel anything. They won't get anything out of it. So is, they don't crave the drugs. Mm-hmm. Is there a danger of overdose on if somebody is on, you know, well, real quick, one of the reasons why Krista is, <laughs> I sought her out is because she can say Buprenorphine, right? <laughs> I mean, and she said it like six times already so far, and I and I can't say it once. Yeah, I didn't um, even attempt. <laughs> but, and the implant is even worse. But, the implant is probuphine. Is is there a an a danger of somebody overdosing? There is, and we always make sure that like anyone that's seeking out any of those medications understands that. Um, methadone obviously has the highest chance of overdose with it solely because it is an opiate that we're giving them. And so and that, that doesn't, that doesn't specifically block the receptors in the brain that it blocks. So it blocks the receptor and triggers the receptor. So it okay. stimulates it to make the body think that it just got whatever opiate that that person was originally using. Okay. Um, so with that, they could... There's an adjustment period, sure. too, where they're still changing their dosing on their methadone. And so that it may not be lasting them a full 24 hours. And so they may try to use on top of it, not realizing that that methadone has like a half-life and, and everything like that. So that has the highest overdose rate with it. But 
some people on the buprenorphine and the naloxone or the naltrexone, they try to use on and use and use and use until they feel something. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it's they're just too much. Mm-hmm. So in the recovery world, um, we talk about the many pathways to recovery and medication assisted treatment is technically one of the pathways to recovery. Um, do you feel as though we should be kind of changing our uh, language and, you know, calling it medication assisted recovery or like, what are your thoughts on that? So it's the reason why we refer to it in like the counseling realm as treatment is because it's not their full recovery process. So it's only a component of their recovery. Um, that's why we say treatment instead of recovery. Some- because treatment is a part of recovery? Mm-hmm. No. It can no. be for it, some no, people. It, it, it's a precursor too. It's okay. a pathway yeah. too. Yeah. Okay, fair definitely. enough. Yeah, so it's it would be the stage before. Okay. And, and that's not to say that people in treatment aren't in recovery mm-hmm. either. Um, it's just in that realm, it's considered like the step before. So is there an encouragement then to find recovery? There is. And, and we individualize their treatment to a T. Um, we don't have a set protocol for how long they can be with us. We don't kick them out the door after a certain time frame. Whatever they're needing is what they're needing, and who are we to say any different? So we can have individuals that come into treatment that get all their ducks in a row within the first 90 days, and they're able to get off their medications a lot quicker, um, where we have some that have a long history of substance use, and so they may be in treatment for numerous years before they can finally get everything in a row. And Sorry for forgetting. What do you specifically do at the Center for Behavioral Health? So my title, Uh I would say I do a lot, but my title is IOTRC Director, which stands for Integrated Opioid Treatment Recovery Center. Um, It's a designation that we were given by the state through grant funding Mm -hmm. to essentially become a hub-and-spoke model. So we're the hub in Las Vegas and Reno. And we are able to assist a lot of community organizations and facilitate like referrals and connecting individuals to whatever it is that they're needing to help them find that recovery process. And I play like daily role where I'm assisting the staffs in the locations as well as helping with the grant expansion and and out in the community doing outreach. So I kind of I'm all over (laughs) And you were at one time, you were the the director. Yes. So I was hired in a counseling position. So I was front of the line staff when I started seven years ago. And then I became a clinical director at one of the other locations. I took over as program director. Then I moved to another location and then now took this position. So why do you think you're not Batman? I mean, <laughs> seriously. Chelsea thinks I'm Batman. <laughs> um I'm very humble in what I do. It's not it's not about me and right. it's not about what I what I do. So And I'll tell you, I mean, so the first time I ever met her, we had our No Hero and Heroin was relatively new. We had our Black Monday event, our first annual. It was relatively well attended considering the time and space. And we had a some review journal came came in and, and they did an article and I guess Krista found out about us and she emailed me. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea who she was. And I thought, are you sure? I, I would like to go out and, 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 and meet, you know, reach out and meet some other people. And I had the idea in my head what a medically assisted treatment methadone clinic, what it would look like, dark and dingy. And and, sure. and, and I swear to God, and I walk in and I see Krista and the place is bright and she's lovely. And, and it was it was absolutely nothing like I had anticipated. It is one of the cleanest facilities I've ever seen. It was, it's like a doctor's office. It certainly, it, it is a doctor's office. And I don't know what I had in my mind, but it certainly was not that. And, and, and she was just bright and the whole staff was bubbly, you know, and shiny. It was, it was, it was a wonderful experience. How, how many people do you guys serve? serve? So right now between the four main locations that we have in Nevada, we have just under 2000 that are on one of the medications. And then we have about another 500 and that are just in our outpatient counseling. So 2,500. Yeah. Like at any one time. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's growing like rapidly. And that's just here in Las Vegas. 
Um, that's here in Reno. Okay. So the three clinics here in Vegas and our one in Reno. Um, three of the four have censuses over 500 right now. That's a lot of people. It why, is. Why do you think there's such a stigma around it in the recovery community? Diversion is the biggest problem um, because Suboxone and Methadone are found on the street and you do hear people abusing them. But they're they're just like any other prescription. They're just not using it the way it was intended to. And so I don't think it should be looked at any different than any of the other meds that are being abused. Um, but for whatever reason, it I mean, just you, you has can a bad literally rap. abuse any medication. Mm-hmm. Um, Benadryl, mm-hmm. cough syrup. Yeah, Tin High is next. You, you you're on the board of directors there. I am. What's it like working with Joe here? He's mentioned a lot on this podcast. Other (laughs) than me and Chelsea, he's probably the second most mentioned. I feel like I get to do a lot with Tenhai. I was helping out with just the events volunteering up until last year um, when we kind of told Joe he needed to stop doing it all by himself (laughs) and that there were all of us that could help him do these things. What What was the first thing you guys worked on together? So we actually worked on... Black Monday first. We worked on Black Monday 2019 since July of last year. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the biggest thing. And it was that, certainly the biggest Black Monday event that we've ever had. It mm-hmm. was it was off the charts, in my opinion. It was amazing. Yeah, it was great. I was there, too. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, you did. Not really. It was much of a blur to me now at this point. Yeah. I remember bits and pieces, but. There's so many foundations. I want to hit each one okay. that you work with. So Tinhai, what's next? I uh, would be SNOAC, Southern Nevada Opioid Advisory Council. Okay, what do you do there? So I'm on the executive committee with a bunch of um, directors from various organizations in Southern Nevada. But the intention is for all of us to get in one place quarterly to talk specifically about opioid use in Southern Nevada and initiatives that are going on. We um, are meeting every February. We do like a review of what laws are in the legislation at that time and what we should be looking for. And we kind of just keep everyone in the know of what's going on. What kind of people are invited to this? Like who else is going to this brain trust? So the general meetings are open. Um, That's an open forum. So we get everyone from like doctors and politicians to recovery facilities and and places like Foundation for Recovery. Um, The executive committee was kind of just a select few that was narrowed down to kind of help streamline those bigger meetings. Next one. Um, So after SNOAC would be SNAP, would be the State of Nevada Association of Addiction Professionals. That's a long one. Yeah. So is it just people that work? Within the recovery community locally? Yeah, within the addiction treatment realm. And, and that could be anyone from directors to treatment providers to nurses to ER doctors. And those are monthly community meetings where we all kind of just bring to the table. Same thing, update everyone on what's going on. Do you have to go to all these monthly meetings? Like, we do. So how many w- meetings do you go like a week? You don't want to know. I do. <laughs> I do want to know. If I pulled out like my – so I have – to have five calendars to function with everything that I have. Jesus. Hmm. Yeah. How many meetings did you have today? Um, I actually had no meetings today. Just this. But I had work and internship today. So you have school, work, and then family. Family. And family. You have kids? I do. Wow. I have a three-year-old. <laughs> and two dogs. And two dogs. I think she has a clone machine. <laughs> right? That would make things a lot easier. I want to learn more about the uh, the teams that go out and help people out in the community. My brain can't think of our mobile either. teams. Yes, please. Okay. Oh, you have mobile teams. <laughs> yes. So the grant that we received in 2017 through the state um, was part of federal funding that came through specifically to address the opioid epidemic. What Nevada decided to do with that funding was to give it to the facilities that were already on the ground doing that work and allow them to expand services into areas that they weren't previously able to do so, whether that was because of insurance barriers or those type of things. How are we going to get paid for it? Um, And one of those tasks was developing mobile outreach recovery teams. Those teams um, consist of a counselor and a peer support specialist. 
and they're dispatched to the ER when someone comes in on an overdose or self-reports that they've been using. Mm -hmm. And that team goes in, talks to them, assesses what their needs are, sees if they're ready for treatment. If they're ready for treatment, that team coordinates them going right from the hospital to the treatment center. And if they're not ready for treatment, going over harm reduction techniques with them, how to be safe, and who to contact when they are ready. Have you been a counselor for one of these teams? So I oversee the team. So I am one of the counselors right now that responds on those calls um, if needed. Um, But yeah, it's been an interesting experience. I would love to know how it is to just show up at somebody's hospital bed. So usually um, the, the hospital staff in the ER has been kind of given not necessarily a script, but kind of a way to break it down to the patient. Like, hey, we have this service. It's at no cost to you. They'll help you get whatever it is that you're needing right now. Would you or would you not want to talk with them? And it is the patient's option. They can say no, like, to heck with it. I don't want to talk to anyone right now. Um, But if they say yes, then that's when the hospital staff calls us. So we know that the patient's already ready for something when we get there. We just then have to figure it out what it is that they're ready for. How how often do people say, how often do you talk to people? So we launched the mobile team in November um, with one hospital. We're only officially with one hospital right now um, because hospitals are have legal departments and all kinds of things they want you to go through before you can do those kind of things. Um, But with that hospital, we've seen quite a number of calls um, because it's in an area of town that there's a lot of need. It's right just a little bit north of Fremont Street. And so it's where there's a high homeless population. There's a high veteran population. There's a lot of people that are needing a lot of services and don't know how to find them. Are people finding um, treatment and recovery? Like, do they stay with the program after? How receptive are people? So the goal of that program is to not necessarily them to have to come into treatment with us. So if they're wanting to go to detox or they're running to go to residential or sober living, whatever it is, we'll coordinate that with them. And majority of these calls, that's what they've wanted. Mm-hmm. They they don't nec- they don't see themselves succeeding in an outpatient setting, which is what we would be. So we'll coordinate. We've had people go into detox and residential. We've had people go to sober living, and from what we know from our our follow up after, they've stuck with it. So what I've noticed from from all this, you work for all these groups and foundations. They all have specific goals, right? Mm-hmm. What's your specific goal? Like, why specifically are you doing so much? I don't want any family to ever have to go through, like, the internal turmoil that my family went through. Um, When we lost those two family members, our family was so divided on who was responsible for what and who to blame for what. And it was just – it was – disheartening because it we were all so close prior to that like we used to have big family reunions every year and everything and it it sucked not seeing everyone again and everyone being at each other's throats and it was like we should all be grieving not mad at each other and so my commitment was to make sure that no one else ever had to feel what my brother and I felt in that situation did that correlate to your like why you wanted to be a counselor as well? I had started getting into the counseling field right when my uncle had passed away. Um, I didn't know at the time that I didn't that I wanted to get into addiction. I just knew that was another way of helping people without having to go to med school. Um, and then I was in my master's program when we lost my grandmother, and that was part of like the blame that happened was because everyone assume that I should have known what was going on. Oh, really? Because I was a master's level clinician and why didn't I pick up the signs and mm. and things like that. And so that's when I was really like, yep, this is where I need to be because I don't want anyone to ever have to feel like this. Right, and that's very much what happens in addiction. Um, those that are using find someone to blame for why they're using. Sometimes it's themselves, but sometimes it's they blame it on everyone else. Like my problem is everyone else's problem. 
Um, and then the families that surround them are, are beat themselves up. Like, well, what did we do wrong to make them the way they are? I definitely think that oh, most days. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll we'll stay away from no, no, that. We'll, 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 we'll get away from that. <laughs> but I'm with you, though. Like, I, I have a brother that's in active addiction right now. And it got to where, like, I had to tell him, I can't take your phone calls. I can't. I just can't anymore. You have I to do what's do best it. for you. I still take her phone calls and I still go see her. But it's just... It's rough. If it starts to impede on your um, well-being and your emotions um, to where it's too much to handle, then that's the point where you have to maybe remove. But every single person is different. Like everybody, you handle it the way you're supposed to handle everything. I mean, I hear conflicting arguments on this, and, and I hate to bring up Joe right now, but I mean, you have family that has been... Tough love is what we're talking about. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to say yes. It's hard to say no. Um, I, I don't, I'm asking if you had to struggle with that same. Oh, thing. still daily. Yeah. You know, d- daily. You know, I, I, I'm a bereaved parent, as most people know. Um, I have another son who currently is in and out of his program of recovery. So, I mean, where is the tough love? You know, I know for a fact that tough love kills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, certainly that, 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 that happened to me. You know, um, but then again, giving them, you know, enabling, you know, which is the word, that's the buzzword we say, yeah. enabling, don't enable, you know, and, and, and that's hard when you're connected, you know, what is that line, you know, and I think one of the definitions I heard of it that I like is, is, is keeping, keeping them from doing something that doing for them something that they can do themselves. Okay. Right. So if he can do something for themselves, you know, I mean, it, we don't call in sick for them at work. Right. We, you know, that's one thing we don't do. You know, if he can, you know, we don't pay their bills for them because it, if they're grown, they should be able to pay their own bills. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's difficult, you know, and, and it's not, you know, I'm certainly not an expert at it. Yeah. I mean, no, nobody hears except, except maybe you. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm an expert at it either because I struggle daily with, because I have it in my personal life right. and then I see it daily in my professional life, setting that boundary for myself where I'm a counselor or where I'm a family member. Like right. that's my struggle on a daily basis. Because, And I'll, you'll ask my husband and he'll tell you all the time, like, don't counsel me mm. because there, there'll be things that come out of my mouth that are very much from a professional standpoint as, a, as opposed to like a significant other. Right. Is it, for example. <laughs> I <laughs> Chelsea may know too um, because she does this for a living as well but is it like when you say things like it sounds like yeah or, <laughs> when you reflect or you yeah, summarize what they're saying yeah. sounds listening. like you don't like the way I made this chicken marsala <laughs> uh, yeah I'm Italian though my husband loves my cooking so th- that's never said in my house <laughs> sounds like you don't want this bearded dragon right <laughs> Or like I'll say things like I'll try to be like the responsible yes. parent and it's like you shouldn't let him climb on the counters because he's going to fall off and he's going to break his leg and blah, blah. like I try to think super logical and it's like he's three. Let him be a kid. Calm down, Krista. Likes <laughs> you. Put a helmet on him and yeah, call it a day. Pretty much. <laughs> so everybody at this table, which is four of us, currently work within the recovery community in some Aspect capacity yes. in some capacity, which means you run into a lot of people dealing with a lot of things. Uh, how do you not bring it home? I think self care is one of the most important things, and if we're not taking care of our own like emotional, spiritual, or physical health, then those things will creep in, and like your boundaries will be lessened. And so, I mean, you like you can envision yourself people who feel as though they or taking it home with them, you know, when they're leaving their car, like when you step out or step into your home that like you're leaving it away or like when you're taking a shower, like you're wiping away everything of the day, you know, I think like having that physical connection of like, I am not taking this home with me because most of the time we don't even know that we're doing it. Have you know, have there been a time when you like, Oh shit, I, I did bring this home today. I th- I think so. Yeah. I mean, if you're aware, I guess of your, actions and you know how you treat people and that sort of thing i mean it's really easy to to take it out on your loved ones right if you had a 
hard day or whatnot and you worked with somebody that, you know, was you're a little discouraged, like it's easy to take that out on your loved ones. But like when you really stand with yourself and like hear what you're doing, it's it's easy to see like that it has nothing to do with them. It just has to do with that I haven't like left it at work. Kristen, do you do things to I have to set a lot of boundaries because of the many roles I play. Um, And I've been fortunate enough to work for the company that I work for as long as I have. So a lot of our patients in treatment I've seen since intake day. And so I've seen them at their lowest of their low. And now they're thriving, productive members of society. And so there's a personal connection there with a lot of them. And so same as Chelsea, like if they relapse it's discouraging because it's like, what did I do to set them up for this or, or things like that? Um, or in, in life you have individuals that like pass away for various reasons and it could be something totally, completely separate from their addiction. And those are hard too. Cause th- there's been, you've got that connection with them as their counselor and you see them on a daily basis and they almost become part of like your extended family. And so, I definitely have to make sure I set boundaries and everyone I work with in the community on all these different organizations, they know what mode I'm in because I'm very clear with the, hey, nope, I'm at work right now. I can't touch 10 high stuff or, hey, I'm an internship. I can't touch work stuff. They they know when I'm available for what. Is it like introducing friends to other groups of friends? <laughs> <laughs> like you ever, you're like, ah, I can't. It's I can't like cross tin high cars. with uh, harm it, reduction. It's kind of like Sorry. being in bumper cars. Okay. Like we're all kind of in the same arena, but like we kind of stay, you have to no, stay in your lane in or <laughs> <laughs> you, you like, we're all doing the same thing and the outcome's going to be the same, but there, there can be times where we conflict, but we never, I never let them become one. Okay. What about you, Joe? What do you do to, uh, Lighten the load. Yeah. Not bring it home. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I do bring it home. Okay. <laughs> certainly, certainly it, it is my life. Um, okay. I, while I'm in the addiction world, I don't get paid for that. That, yeah, yeah. that doesn't give me any money. So that's what I do. As a hobby. <laughs> As a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, working a program, a personal program of recovery is a beautiful way to live. Mm-hmm. So certainly most, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm a person in long-term recovery, almost 25 years mm-hmm. coming up in May. If I don't, Nice. So that that's a big deal. So I've I've most of my people that are in my life have some connection to their personal programs of recovery. So when we go out for fun, I'm with other people in recovery. So that's part of my life. My wife works as she's the CEO of the Las Vegas Rescue Mission. So yeah, certainly there is a lot of you know substance. You're surrounded by it. The only thing that isn't is your actual job. And then the only thing isn't is my actual job. (laughs) Correct. And 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 tennis. So I try to compartmentalize and I I have Sunday morning tennis that I play. I try to, you know, I I, I ride my bike, you know, when my knees aren't hurting. I you know I I I try to compartmentalize. And family. Obviously I have you know family is a strong, strong connection for me. So we you know we you know that's just what we do. I mean it's very, very full, very, very big, you know, and um I wouldn't have it any other way. Fair enough. A lot of us have so much like that we do that we contribute to, I guess, society. Do you feel like, do you feel like staying busy equals success? No, not in this field. Yes. Because staying busy means that our work isn't done. Mm. Um, Because I have a job, that means there's still addiction going on. Oh, yeah. And so until I'm out of a job, like until there's no need for my position, I wouldn't consider anything a success. Hmm. If we went one day without a single overdose death, I would probably be jumping off the roof. Like that would be a success to me. And I don't think we're anywhere near that. I think we could get there. But it's going to take like a huge team of warriors to ever get to that point. What do you, do you think that team would look like? I have no idea. I think it, you're I, Batman. I think it, it's literally like it would have to be everyone on board. Um, I have internship in a primary care facility. So it's primary care, like your doctor you go to for your annual physical, basically. They specialize with the LGBTQ population, which we're seeing a lot of substance use and and alcohol use specifically in that population. 
But they're just now introducing like screening for those things until you have the medical community on board trying to identify it. And the barrier has been that if I identify it, I have no idea what to do with it if I identify it. That's a big disconnect. So you think. Well, certainly that is a, a success. Right. I mean, and certainly that's a, a success that they are now moving towards that and screening where it wasn't happening before. Now that's happening now. Right. So if we can focus on that, we can say that's a win. Yeah, right? Absolutely. And I think it will make a, a difference in numbers and, and we'll see the effects of that. And what are they screening for? Substance use. Oh, just substance use in general. Just screening for substance use. Isn't that what it's called? Espert. 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 Yeah, just screening in general because like primary care doctors weren't doing it because they don't have a psychiatrist on staff. So if they have someone that has severe alcohol use disorder, what do they do with them now? Mm -hmm. Like, can they continue treating them? Where do they refer them to? Do they have to go to detox? Do they have to do this? Do they have to do that? And they just see that as paperwork. Mm -hmm. I have to do more and more paperwork. We saw that with AB 474 and the doctors having to do all these consents now and and reviewing things with patients before they prescribe an opiate. It breaks down to two pieces of paper. Mm -hmm. And the medical community was so up in arms that there's doctors that sold their practices and move out of the state because they didn't want to do these two pieces of paper with their patients. It's horrible. So you think the state needs to become more of a recovery-oriented system of care? Absolutely. Absolutely. If everyone was, there's ways for us to address it. There's just a disconnect between the treatment and recovery community and the medical community. Seems like you guys need a centralized application. Well, that, again? that's kind of like what she was talking about. What Chelsea had just mentioned, the ROSC, R-O-S-C the recovery-oriented systems of care. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that 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 would be a great, great start. Is that like a computer program? <laughs> it sounds like it's it doesn't. Only it were that easy. That, that's what I'm thinking. Sounds like it. That's what I'm thinking that you're talking about. It's like you need some type of net, like network of. Essentially, yeah. yeah. Essentially, it's just um, the medical community, the treatment community, the uh, recovery community, all being one system of care to help people to find recovery and. I mean, not only that mental health. Yeah, uh, the entire yes, medical, physical health, everything. Yeah, correct. And so that's where we need to educate providers. I think it's really important. And we're getting there. Like we're making steps. Like Nevada adjusted our prescription monitoring program website. So now when when doctors have to run those to see a patient's prescription history, there's now an overdose rating. So it essentially takes the prescriptions that the person's on and indicates what their overdose risk level is based on just their prescribed medications. So that is huge in itself because that can tell maybe a naive doctor, hey, the medications they're on are are putting them at risk and you're now about to prescribe something that's going to put them at even more risk. So what happens when they get alerted? It's just for the, the doctor's knowledge. That, that's kind of where some of the disconnect is. Do, do you think the doctor talks to the patient? Like, hey, it looks like it, that you maybe, you know, have a substance use disorder. Or I know our facilities, we address it with the patients because mm-hmm. we run those on intake day and then periodically throughout their treatment to make sure they're not filling anything that we don't know about. And we talk to them about it. Like, hey, this combination of substances, you need to be very cautious and make sure you're following directions as prescribed and those type of things. Um, So I can only speak for our doctors and what we do with that score. Do you think the disconnect stems from maybe um, substance use not being, substance use disorder not being recognized as a disease uh, until like the last 15 years or so? Yes, absolutely. And I... I make sure in the presentation that I do specifically on CBH, we have a full slide that compares addiction to diabetes and how it matches like point for point and how the end result of treatment for diabetes is you put someone on medication if their lifestyle modification and all this stuff doesn't work, but yet we don't treat addiction that way. And that usually like I get dead silence in the room when that slide comes up. Because everyone, like, it really hits home. Because we talk about diabetes all day long. Yeah. But we don't talk about addiction the same way. With working with all these foundations, you do a lot of uh, bureaucracy stuff, like paperwork and whatnot, and having to deal with 
do those clash with you wanting to help, like actually help and then having to run into like paperwork? There is. Um, we run into it a lot with Tin High. There's so many aspirations we have with Tin High um, that funding prevents us from doing things that we know our community needs and would benefit from. And then you have to get into grant application and grant applications are always like 20 pages long. And who has time to sit down and do those when we do this voluntarily outside of our full-time jobs? And that that prevents, there's a lot of really good ideas that paperwork and funding stops them at the table and they don't go past that. Or have the resources, mm-hmm. you know, grant writers and that sort of thing. Joe can time it. Like the biggest project that Tin High has been focused on right now is is we would love to see a recovery community center. Yeah. Somewhere specifically for individuals in recovery of all ages that we can do the alternative peer group at, that we can have support groups at, that we can do all these different things out of. But that's a big task. Are there any places like that in the country at all? Sure. They're, yeah. they're called RCOs, Recovery Community Organizations, and they are basically a drop-in center that's like a hub. And Foundations for Recovery is is, is accredited RCO. Right. Oh, so I did not know that. But we need as many as we can have. So the country, there are so many RCOs. I think there's over 100 now, but um, most states have at least like 10. That wouldn't be the right math, but most states on the <laughs> East Coast have like 10 and uh we don't have any here on the West Coast. And I think the more RCOs, the better, the more places to have recovery functions and, you know, community centers. It's it's really important. And that's that's the grand goal that we're working towards now. That but. That, that and, uh, you know, some sort of bridge house, um, some, some, some sort of, you know, somebody doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what your insurance, what your what your financial status is. If you're sick, come in here and you could have a bed and you can get safely medically detoxed. You know, and then from there, transition into a sober living home um, or some sort of intensive outpatient. That that would be a dream goal. Um, would would be to have something. It doesn't matter who you are. Just come in here. Come in here. I get phone calls sometimes in the middle of the night from parents. You know, because they see my phone number on the website mm-hmm. and they know that we help. And I'm just I don't have the resources to help, but I sit and listen to them and I talk to them. And these mothers, these grieving mothers, are just you know fathers. They're just you know traumatized. They don't know what to do with their kid. Um, Again, are there places like that around the country that you're talking about where you can just walk in and get help? Because it seems no. like the ER. Yeah, it that seems ER. like that'd be. That, that, that's it. I mean, that that certainly, you know, go go ahead with what you're going to say. But there's well, no, that, no place that, that I'm aware of. As soon as you said that, I'm like, well, that's got to be a controversial idea. Like, who's going to fund it? Well, not only fund it, but who? <laughs> nobody's going to want to lose that money. That, but I think that one of the biggest barriers to finding treatment is funding and is uh, most people can't do private pay and most people don't have necessarily the insurance to pay for their treatment. No, because I'm, I'm for what you're saying, but I just think there would be people that would be like, well, we need to stop this because we're going to lose money. Right. And because I, it, they get money for beds, right? Because yeah. even if it's grant money, you yeah. know, I mean, they get, per, you know, they get paid when that, that bed's full. But there is so much um, substance use around town that we have we can support everybody like there's enough to go around agree and i think it's just even on a lower level um the individuals that would go through those type of programmings would find a way to give back to those type of programs Always. because I, I use for instance um as I twisted Joe's arm to do this, but we tin high funds scholarships through my locations for individuals that walk in that maybe don't have their insurance set up yet because they just got released from prison or um, they come in and they're homeless. And so they've never been asked to set up their insurance or for whatever means they can't pay for intake. And we don't want them to walk out back out that door. So we have a fund with Tin High that we can use to pay for that first week of treatment to at least get them started and keep them there so that we can help them figure out what the next step is, whether that's getting them signed up for their insurance, whether it's getting them transferred to a facility that would better fit their needs, whatever it may be. And a lot of those funds right now in the three locations in Las Vegas are self-sustaining because the individuals that we've helped with them, 
when they've gotten on their feet, they've paid back that intake fee to donate it back so that they can kind of pay it forward for the next person that walks through the door. And we anticipated having to use that fund a lot, but I think I only have to ask Joe maybe every couple of months now because and, it, and it's nominal. It's not much, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it really yeah. is, and, and and it's amazing that it is self sustaining. I thought that would be a bill that we'd have to keep paying, but she doesn't ask me for money very often. <laughs> and, and and I can say that the one that's most self sustaining is my clinic in the worst part of town. Yeah. That you would think the patients, there's no way they'd be able to pay this back. And they're the ones, I think we started the fund and we've maybe only asked for additional funds once or twice in the two years we've had that fund. Those patients have been the most like receptive to helping the next person. And so if we did have a a detox program where someone could just come in, didn't matter if they had had ID on them or not, that's a big barrier to whether or not they have ID, whether we can confirm how old they are, like those type of things. If they could just come in, I guarantee they would find a way to give back to that program, whether it's volunteering to lead a group once a week. And so that's a paid staff member that you now don't have to have there for that group because you can do a peer-led group. Like little things like that, the, the return on investment might not necessarily be monetary, but would be instrumental in community, kind of it, changing it, this. It's certainly a net benefit for community. Right. You know, and it's huge. And and, and that, to scale that up to a, to a larger thing, I mean, it's just beautiful to think about. Yeah. The possibilities, you know, the hope that, that it instills in the community, it's wonderful. Like we were talking about regulations and, and whatnot, and to have something like, like that, that A is for everybody, B is somewhat self-sustaining, uh, not, I'm not, really supposed to say these kinds of things, but overcharging insurances, uh, <laughs> that well, it's what this community needs. You got to look at it. The cost is crazy. Yeah. I mean, cost is, 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 right. is, is, is outrageous. Whatever they charge is, it's outrageous. There's, it doesn't seem possible that in, that it needs to cost as much. I'm no medical expert by, by any stretch. <laughs> Me neither, but there's no reason that a uh, urine test to cost $5,000. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say 5,000? Yeah. You mean 5,000 a day? Yeah. <laughs> really? No, I, I know. And I, I don't really feel like this is the episode. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. But again, I, with this podcast, I've, I've been wanting to get into this subject for a while and it's, it's, it's sketchy. Meaning that I could, we all work in a recovery community. We all know people who are high up in the game that could take offense. <laughs> Agreed. And I get it. I, I see it with running the grant and everything now, like the financial side of things. Oh, yeah. and, and I 100% understand that. Um, upcharging, out the yinging, though, just because you need to make a dollar is an entirely different story. And I think... I think that's why I've stuck with CBH as long as I have, because you can tell that their intention is patient care. And so we try to limit the cost to covering the expenses and the staff and and leave it at that sort of thing. And that's why they've been in business for 23 years. Like, but treatment centers don't stay open for 23 years unless they're doing something right in patient care. And but I'm with you, Chris. It shouldn't cost five thousand. And it's certainly not exclusive. Screen. It's certainly it's certainly not exclusive to treatment, or you know, no, no. You know, no. I mean, I I got a knee brace yeah. from my doctor. It's like five hundred dollars, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so I mean, that's seventeen dollars to make. Yeah, I mean, whatever. you can get it at CVS for 25, 30 bucks. You know what I mean? So, so it's certainly that's just the way it is here in America. Mm-hmm. A, fr- yeah. a friend of mine told me that that the medicals. <laughs> This, this might piss people off too, but but the but the medical Let's system in America works perfect. It works perfectly as designed, except it's not designed to get people well. Right, it's no. designed to get people rich. Right, yeah, you know, and that's and that's the truth. You know, right. which it, makes me want to open up a knee brace company <laughs> <laughs> and have a baseball bat in the other hand. Is that what you? Why? Why yeah, a baseball I mean, bat? Break a knee? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, I was. I would just thinking, throw marbles. <laughs> I was thinking that she was referencing like baseball player salaries in America oh. versus other countries. We're waiting on their phone call. UFC, come on. You me You're listening. Call oh. Brian. We're waiting. And oh, apparently I don't have to cut it out there. <laughs> UFC, what's up? <laughs> Listen to my podcast, <laughs> Dana White. Um. 
Yeah, that's another way that they can give back. What? Donate to the podcast. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Donate to my podcast. I'd love that. I, I'm not sarcastic at all. No, I'm not. <laughs> Anyways, I don't like talking about that. <laughs> uh, the First Responders Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act Advisory Council. Wait, what? That's a long acronym. Don't even care. So it's the FR CARA was a grant, and it's the advisory council for that, but it's specifically to do um, community awareness with first responders. Okay. So, like, what resources they have. Like um, Narcan and... All of that. Treatment centers. um, We're starting a community paramedic program through Las Vegas Fire and Rescue, and so... Individuals that have overdosed will then be followed up with a peer support and a first responder. So usually that's going to be um, a paramedic. So it'll be a, a paramedic and a peer support that will go to that individual's house um, within those 72 hours after that overdose. to kind of follow up with them, see if they got what they needed, if they're needing connection to other things. And that one is called again. I just want to hear you try to say it again. <laughs> First Responders Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act Advisory Council. Who came up with that? Who knows? Kara was a national uh, bill. Okay. Next one. The Southern Harm Reduction Alliance. And you guys do that together? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. What's that about? (laughs) Um, Different agencies as well as community members who um, support harm reduction and want to educate the community on harm reduction and harm reduction techniques. Um, Explain what harm reduction is. So harm reduction is reducing harm, whether that is um, sexual diseases or substance use. Um, There are harm reduction and overdose trainings that the Harm Reduction Alliance does. We also do, um, oh my gosh, my mind just went blank. In August, we have Overdose Awareness Day. Um, that we put on every year, and it's a good event. The concept of harm reduction is, as our fearless leader Jenny (laughs) has beaten into our brains, (laughs) it's meeting someone where they're at but not leaving them there. So if, if they're using intravenously and they're not ready to get into treatment, we make sure that they have clean syringes to use every time they're going to use. Or if they're a sex worker and working in the sex industry, we make sure that they have condoms every time they're out on an encounter. Just making sure that they're safe in whatever activity they're engaging in. And, and it and it it helps the community. I mean, obviously, yeah. if you have less infectious diseases running around town, I mean, sure. that's a community benefit. So certainly, it, 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 harm reduction is a great idea. And communities, it's communities that have strong harm reduction alliances have healthier communities. Well, because if you are practicing in harm reduction, maybe at some point then you'd want to find recovery if that's what you choose. But, you know, you'd think that people who are using um, vending machines, going to places like Track B, um, getting different uh, things to utilize harm reduction services, that they at some point would then find resources to get into recovery or treatment. Or Do you find that there's pushback for harm reduction? Oh, absolutely. It's one of the most stigmatized things, I think, in our community. You basically get told that, like, you're promoting them continuing to use or that you're promoting them continuing to work in the sex industry. So you get blamed for Mm -hmm. somebody else's actions. Mm -hmm. Or it's just people don't understand. They don't truly understand and what the purpose of harm reduction is because you can't help somebody if they're dead, right? Like you want to let them know that the community supports them even while they're using um, and that they want to be there for them, you know, throughout the whole process. And it, I mean, people are using, I mean, I mean, it's no secret, you know, so just because it's not, just because you pretend not to look at it doesn't mean it's not happening. So certainly, I mean, it's a good idea to, to shine a light on it. And then sometimes people will feel, I don't know, that they will be questioning themselves or not their own ethics, so to speak, you know, because inside of everybody says like, I can't give somebody a a clean needle away. Right. I mean, I can't give a clean syringe. I mean, that's something wrong with me if I'm doing that, but 
if you get past that point and you realize it's really helping the community, you're helping the people. I mean, what do they take in? Like seventy? They take in like seventy thousand. They they clean needles every month. Every month. Every month. I in, mean, dirty needles. In 2018, they collected over half a million. <laughs> that's Jesus. insane. Syringes. So that's that's a half a million used syringes that are not floating around our right. garbage. You know, our, yeah. our you know streets, landfills yeah. right now. Streets. Absolutely. And I think that was that was some of the pushback I got when I when we got involved with the Harm Reduction Alliance. I know per, from like a personal individual in my personal life, um, the pushback was. Well, you're going to be handing them out, and now they're going to be in the parks where my kids play. And I said, my response was, they're already in your parks. Yeah. I'm giving them the sharps container to put them in so they're not in your parks. And it was dead quiet. Right. Do taking these containers out, like, you can see uh, a metric where it's working. I think it's still so new. Our syringe exchange has only been in the city since beginning of 2017 mm-hmm. and, and and really didn't get going until t- beginning of 2018. And so I think once we start seeing like disease reporting numbers for 2018, I think we're going to see an, a decrease in new cases and new transmissions because of us having that service. Right. So so harm reduction isn't necessarily a new idea, but it's it's something that's taken this long to get some get some feet under it um i think that places like northern california and new york like they've already had harm reduction inside their communities yes exactly and um you know we're just trying to really make it a nationwide practice and it's a big ship that we got to turn. Big ocean liner, Chris. <laughs> We're not changing the America's opinion yeah. overnight. I mean, sure. It's taking a long time, certainly. You know, it's going to take a lot of people grabbing an oar, you right. know, and, 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 and helping row. That's a great metaphor. <laughs> and it goes right along. Like the biggest, the biggest component of harm reduction that's seeing the most controversy is safe injection mm-hmm. sites. And it's. I guarantee it's only a matter of time. I would say within the next 18 months at at the very maximum that we see our first safe injection site here in the U.S. And the numbers that those, the ones that currently exist in Europe and in Canada, the numbers they see are, are insane to try to deny that service. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, wait, we want to give them somewhere to use their drugs? Like, now we're not just giving them syringes, but now we're going to actually give them somewhere to use them. Those facilities haven't seen a single overdose death because if someone overdoses, the medical staff is right there to respond within a few seconds. And and that's the biggest proponent of harm reduction that's so controversial. But I think it's only a matter of time before we see it here. No, that the Everything that they're using stays in, in one specific area. It's not spread out through parks. Mm-hmm. They have nurses helping them find their vein, so if, they don't have abscesses from missing. Like it's a controlled like environment, mm-hmm. you know. I think the, the thing that people people don't necessarily realize is that they're going to use anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's denial, yeah. Yeah, they just like you said. They don't. They don't think it's. They don't look at it. They look at it as somewhere somewhere else for them to use. As opposed to where we'll look at it as, no, it's somewhere safe for them to right. use. We can respond if they're sitting in front of us in the overdose. We can't respond if they're sitting at home doing their shot right. and no one's with them and no one knows to check on them until tomorrow. Yeah. Like, that's that's a problem. And they're willing to be educated if they're there too, like on proper use and overdose and chant most of the time. <laughs> Most of the time people receive naloxone, right, so that they um, won't have an overdose and that they keep getting free naloxone and that it's attainable to anybody because I don't know if you've ever walked into a Walgreens, but if you ask for naloxone, um, you get this look, right, that you're a drug addict or whatnot. And, you know, I think that's another layer and another conversation that we have to have stigma about stigma. Yeah. yeah, That seems to be what this... It's reform and 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 uh, fighting the stigma is mm-hmm. from when I started this podcast have been the two most prevalent things. 
And it just means getting getting individuals comfortable, too, um, with the staff in those sites. And I, I can see that from both the Track B standpoint and the CBH standpoint, because Track B, we're there doing treatment screenings. And the longer that we've been there and the more they've seen our face, when they are ready, they're willing to come tell us they're ready because they've seen us for the last six months and they know our face and they know who we are. Same as CBH just got one of the syringe vending machines. We're a treatment facility that's handing out clean syringes. Right. That's kind of a hypocritical thought in itself. Um, and the individuals that are coming in and using the machine, when they're ready to seek treatment, they're going to be comfortable with us and comfortable enough to tell us that they're ready. So that that's a huge component of that. It seems very altruistic. You would think. Well, that's a good way to put it. Certainly. So we've done an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> I think uh, we need to end with Tin High's events yes. because we really need people involved with these events with Tin High because as much as I love CBH and I love what I do and mm-hmm. I wish everyone in the world that needs mat treatment to come to CBH and pick us over everyone else, <laughs> um, Tin High is self-funded. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we need the support. So we need people at these events. We need people volunteering. So, And you guys got the, the shooting event? Yes. This AIM is, in, is April 27th. Then we have the coolest event ever on Mother's Day. We haven't talked about that yet. No. I'm like so excited for this event. <laughs> we we have Rock for Recovery at Brooklyn Bowl okay. on May 12th, so on Mother's Day. It's an all-ages event. Tickets are only 12 bucks. Um, we have a rock DJ that's coming, and he's he's going to play for three hours. Um, the and bowling. He, he's donating his time. He's mm-hmm. donating his time. It's beautiful. So, so this Rock for Recovery event is actually costing Tin High zero dollars to put on. Um, all of the ticket sales will go one hundred percent to Tin High for us to fund scholarships for the seniors that are graduating from the Recovery High School. And so we have eight seniors this year. We have. A I think big, eleven. Okay, so we have 11 seniors now. So we have a big graduating class this year that we need to be able to provide those scholarships for. Um, But it's an all-ages event. It's family-friendly. So to to be able to come down, at least have dinner, like buy the tickets and listen to the DJ and sit in the restaurant and have dinner, um, that still supports us. So I'm super excited about that one because... What's after Rock for Recovery? Then we have the golf tournament, uh, golf. our annual our annual golf classic in September. When this podcast takes off and I become a celebrity, I want to be like the celebrity golf person <laughs> for your event. You will be you will be the MC for the golf event. Wait a second, be, yeah. I want I want to play golf Wait though. I want to be the Bob Barker of Ten High's golfing event. Yeah, and this year the golf tournament is going to be huge um, because, again, we told Joe last year that he couldn't do this by himself, so we each took over an event so that he didn't have to do it. And Roy took over the golf tournament, and he's just kind of blown it out of the water with the sponsorships that we have, and we're doubling the amount of golfers this year than we had last year. And it's just – it's. I played in the golf tournament last year – I was one of the few females that played last year, but it was so much fun. And so. And that's in Boulder City, too. And that's a, it's a Boulder Creek golf course. And it, it it's really beautiful that time of the I year. Think I've been there, yeah. September, September 7th. So yeah. come out in your best. Wait, for the golf? golf. Yes. Oh, okay. Do you have you to do actually play golf yeah. to win the best dressed? <laughs> no. No, not at all. I'll be there. there. There wasn't that stipulation on it, I don't think. No, no, no. <laughs> got to read the fine print. Yeah, what, is the, Roy, what does golf stand for? It doesn't it ha- isn't it an acronym? No. I, I, I don't know. I no. play tennis. We have to have a conversation later <laughs> about. I bet you 20 bucks. Clay pigeons, golf. <laughs> um, 20 bucks. We're shaking no. hands, everybody. There I, is an. There I is think one. Chelsea might be right. I on am. That. I think, I I think she is. I don't think so. <laughs> 20 bucks. We shook awkwardly, so I don't know if that counts. But <laughs> still counts. We saw it. You got witnesses. <laughs> um, all right. So thank you, Joe and thank you. Krista, thank you. for coming on, talking about tonight and all the amazing things you are doing, Batman. <laughs> I try. I try. Um, so check out Tin High's website at 
T-I-N-H-I-H Las Vegas dot info. And the uh, Las Vegas dot info. I'm sorry, do that one more time. T-I-N-H-I-H Las Vegas dot info. Tin High Las Vegas dot info. And thank you, Krista, for coming thank on. You. Thank you for having me. It was fun. It was yeah. lovely. <laughs> um, so anyone that's looking for medication assisted treatment or just trying to get into recovery, we can help. So um, our website is www.centerforbehavioralhealth.com. We also have a Facebook, so you can reach out that way, too. Again, thank you guys for coming on. Thanks. Thanks, Thank you. Subscribe and listen on all the major streaming platforms, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Give us a rating on that iTunes, Apple podcast thing. We uh, need them. Follow us on social media at Recover Everything. Go to our website, recovereverything.com to tell us a story, uh, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you.